Preface to The Fable of the Bees. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. Preface. Laws and government are to the political bodies of civil societies what the vital spirits and life itself are to the natural bodies of animated creatures. And as those that study the anatomy of dead carcasses may see, that the chief organs and nicest springs more immediately required to continue the motion of our machine are not hard bones, strong muscles and nerves, nor the smooth white skin that so beautifully covers them, but small trifling films and little pipes that are either overlooked or else seem inconsiderable to vulgar eyes. So they that examine into the nature of man, abstract from art and education, may observe that what renders him a sociable animal consists not in his desire of company, good nature, pity, affability, and other graces of a fair outside, but that his vilest and most hateful qualities are the most necessary accomplishments to fit him for the largest, and according to the world, the happiest and most flourishing societies. The following fable, in which what I have said is set forth at large, was printed above eight years ago in a sixpenny pamphlet called The Grumbling Hive, or Knaves Turned Honest, and being soon after pirated, cried about the streets in a halfpenny sheet. Since the first publishing of it, I have met with several that, either willfully or ignorantly mistaking the design, would have it that the scope of it was a satire upon virtue and morality, and the whole wrote for the encouragement of vice. This made me resolve, whenever it should be reprinted, some way or other to inform the reader of the real intent this little poem was wrote with. I do not dignify these few loose lines with the name of poem, that I would have the reader expect any poetry in them, but barely because they are rhyme, and I am in reality puzzled what name to give them, for they are neither heroic nor pastoral, satire burlesque nor heroic comic. To be a tale they want probability, and the whole is rather too long for a fable. All I can say of them is that they are story told in doggerel, which, without the least design of being witty, I have endeavored to do in as easy and familiar a manner as I was able. The reader shall be welcome to call them what he pleases. It was said of Montaigne that he was pretty well versed in the defects of mankind, but unacquainted with the excellencies of human nature. If I fare no worse, I shall think myself well used. What country soever in the universe is to be understood by the beehive represented here, it is evident, from what it is said of the laws and constitution of it, the glory, wealth, power, and industry of its inhabitants, that it must be a large, rich, and warlike nation, that is happily governed by a limited monarchy, the satire, therefore, to be met with in the following lines, upon the several professions and callings, and almost every degree and station of people, was not made to injure and point to particular persons, but only to show the vileness of the ingredients that altogether composed the wholesome mixture of a well-ordered society, in order to extol the wonderful power of political wisdom, by the help of which so beautiful a machine is raised from the most contemptible branches. For the main design of the fable as it is briefly explained in the moral, is to show the impossibility of enjoying all the most elegant comforts of life that are to be met with in an industrious, wealthy, and powerful nation, and at the same time be blessed with all the virtue and innocence that can be wished for in a golden age. 
from thence to expose the unreasonableness and folly of those that desirous of being an opulent and flourishing people and wonderfully greedy after all the benefits they can receive as such are yet always murmuring at and exclaiming against those vices and inconveniences that from the beginning of the world to this present day have been inseparable from all kingdoms and all states that ever were famed for strength riches and politeness at the same time to do this i first slightly touch upon some of the fruits and corruptions the several professions and callings are generally charged with after that i show that those very vices of every particular person by skilful management were made subservient to the grandeur and worldly happiness of the whole lastly by setting forth what of necessity must be the consequence of general honesty and virtue and national temperance innocence and content i demonstrate that if mankind could be cured of the failings that they are naturally guilty of they would cease to be capable of being raised into such vast potent and polite societies as they have been under the several great commonwealths and monarchies that have flourished since the creation if you ask me why have i done all this cui bono and what good these notions will produce truly besides the reader's diversion i believe none at all but if i was asked what naturally ought to be expected from them i would answer that in the first place the people who continually find fault with others by reading them would be taught to look at home and examining their own consciences be made ashamed of always railing at what they are more or less guilty of themselves and that in the next those who are so fond of the ease and comforts and reap all the benefits that are the consequence of a great and flourishing nation would learn more patiently to submit to those inconveniences which no government upon earth can remedy when they should see the impossibility of enjoying any great share of the first without partaking likewise of the latter this i say ought naturally to be expected from the publishing of these notions if people were to be made better by any thing that could be said to them but mankind having for so many ages remained still the same notwithstanding the many instructive and elaborate writings by which their amendment has been endeavoured i am not so vain as to hope for better success from so inconsiderable a trifle having allowed the small advantage this little whim is likely to produce i think myself obliged to show that it cannot be prejudicial to any for what is published if it does no good ought at least to do no harm in order to this i have made some explanatory notes to which the reader will find himself referred in those passages that seem to be most liable to exceptions the censorious that never saw the grumbling hive will tell me that whatever i may talk of the fable it not taking up a tenth part of the book was only contrived to introduce the remarks that instead of clearing up the doubtful or obscure places i have only pitched upon such as i had a mind to expiate upon and that far from striving to extenuate the errors committed before i have made bad worse and shown myself a more barefaced champion for vice in the rambling digressions than i had done in the fable itself i shall spend no time in answering these accusations where men are prejudiced the best apologies are lost and i know that those who think it criminal to suppose a necessity of vice in any case whatever will never be reconciled to any part of the performance but if this be thoroughly examined all the offence it can give must result from the wrong inferences that may perhaps be drawn from it and which i desire nobody to make when i assert that vices are inseparable from great and potent societies and that it is impossible their wealth and grandeur should subsist without 
I do not say that the particular members of them who are guilty of any should not be continually reproved, or not be punished for them when they grow into crimes. There are, I believe, few people in London of those that are at any time forced to go afoot, but what could wish the streets of it much cleaner than generally are, while they regard nothing but their own clothes and private conveniency, but when they once come to consider that what offends them is the result of the plenty, great traffic, and opulency of that mighty city, if they have any concern in its welfare, they will hardly ever wish to see the streets of it less dirty. For if we mine the materials of all sorts that must supply such an infinite number of trades and handicrafts, as are always going forward, the vast quantity of victuals, drink, and fuel that are daily consumed in it, the waste and superfluities that must be produced from them, the multitudes of horses and other cattle that are always daubing the streets, the carts, coaches, and more heavy carriages that are perpetually wearing and breaking the pavement of them, and, above all, the numberless swarms of people that are continually harassing and trampling through every part of them. If, I say, we mind all these, we shall find that every moment must produce new filth, and, considering how far distant the great streets are from the riverside, what cost and care soever be bestowed to remove the nastiness almost as fast as it is made, it is impossible London should be more cleanly before it is less flourishing. Now I would ask, if a good citizen, in consideration of what has been said, might not assert that dirty streets are a necessary evil, inseparable from the felicity of London, without being the least hindrance to the cleaning of shoes or sweeping of streets, and consequently without any prejudice either to the blackguard or the scavengers. But if, without any regard to the interest or happiness of the city, the question was put, what place I thought most pleasant to walk in, nobody can doubt but before the stinking streets of London I would esteem a fragrant garden or a shady grove in the country. In the same manner, if laying aside all worldly greatness and vainglory, I should be asked where I thought it was most probable that men might enjoy true happiness, I would prefer a small peaceable society, in which men, neither envied nor esteemed by neighbors, should be contented to live upon the natural product of the spot they inhabit, to a vast multitude abounding in wealth and power, that should always be conquering others by their arms abroad, and debauching themselves by foreign luxury at home. Thus much I had said to the reader in the first edition, and have added nothing by way of preface in the second, but since that a violent outcry has been made against the book, exactly answering the expectation I always had of the justice, the wisdom, the charity, and fair dealing of those whose good will I despaired of. It has been presented by the grand jury, and condemned by thousands who never saw a word of it, it has been preached against before my Lord Mayor, and an utter refutation of it is daily expected from a reverend divine, who has called me names in the advertisements, and threatened to answer me in two months' time for about five months together. What I have to say for myself, the reader will see in my vindication at the end of the book, where he will likewise find the grand jury's presentment, and a letter to the right honorable Lord C., which is very rhetorical beyond argument or connection. The author shows a fine talent for invectives, and great sagacity in discovering atheism, where others can find none. He is zealous against wicked books, points at the fable of the bees, and is very angry with the author. He bestows four strong epithets on the enormity of his guilt, and by several elegant innuendos to the multitude, as the danger there is in suffering such authors to live, 
and the vengeance of heaven upon a whole nation very charitably recommends him to their care. Considering the length of this epistle, and that it is not wholly leveled at me only, I thought at first to have made some extracts from it of what related to myself, but finding, on a nearer inquiry, that what concerned me was so blended and interwoven with what did not, I was obliged to trouble the reader with it entire, not without hopes that, prolix as it is, the extravagancy of it will be entertaining to those who have pursued the treatise it condemns with so much horror. End of Preface